Well, happy Easter. I hope your stomach is full of waffles and uh, yummy, delicious things from the gym and that you're getting ready to celebrate with your family this afternoon or this evening. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning to celebrate this Resurrection Sunday of Jesus. What an exciting morning so far. Um, So I'm going to start off by telling you a story. Several years ago, um, my husband and I were traveling to a very small town in Montana um, for some ministry training. And here's my husband down here on the row. You can wave at him because he always has to listen to me tell stories about him. So <laughs> I got this one pre-approved. Um, so uh, now my husband, Joel, and I, we have a little bit of different traveling strategies. I wonder if any of you can relate. Uh, he is a point A to point B as fast and efficiently as possible. And let's accomplish. You got some friends out there. Let's accomplish as much as we can in the waiting He's the one doing emails, you know, while he's waiting in the airport line. Excuse me, sir. Okay, let me just finish this up before you, you know, laser beam me, make sure I'm safe. Um, I, on the other hand, um, I like to just enjoy the journey. Anybody out there with me? I like to eat the snacks. Yeah. I like to see all the sights. I like to meet as many people as I can. So we're a little bit different. And something happens to me on an airplane. I, I can't explain it. I don't plan it. Quite frankly, it's an epidemic, okay? I don't really know. But when I get on an airplane, I just get really excited that I have a bunch of new friends to talk to. And so uh, when we got on this particular airplane that we were going to fly to Montana, our seats got separated from each other. Uh, the, The plane was very small. The airplane was very full. And as we were getting settled in the airplane, my seat was in the front and Joel's was in the back. Now, I think secretly he was happy about this, but that's another sermon. Um... And so before we even get in the air, before we even get in the air, Joel is already slightly annoyed with the guy on his right who's using more than his designated 47% of the arm's rest, you know? (laughs) You are in my space. The woman on his left is eating peanuts, uh, which is very crunchy and loud. And um, so Joel has his headphones in. He is knee-deep into his podcast. I mean, he is waiting. All is right with the world. And meanwhile, um, I'm in the front of the plane. Um, I'd already found out the names, addresses, deepest, darkest secrets, social security numbers of all the people in my row. Um, We're sharing beef jerky. Um, I'm pretty sure uh, the girl's going to ask me to be in her wedding by the end of the flight. You know, that's my goal. Um, It was just going exactly as I had hoped and planned. And so as we board this tiny plane and we're sitting there and we're, we're in this small city about to fly to a smaller city, a friendly man takes my bag and he loads it under the airplane for me. And he had on a baseball cap. I don't know why I remember that. And I say, oh, thank you so much. And then he, um, the same man gets on the plane a little bit later and he takes the hat off and he begins to give the, the belt buckling instruction and, and showing the emergency exits and, and you can get off the plane here, here, and here. And there'll be complimentary drinks and snacks while in the air. And I thought, wow, this guy does it all. Like, this is awesome. And then I just, like, things got a little bit shady with the costume changes when he then put on a jacket. And I thought, okay, that's strange. And he started telling us how high he would be flying how long the flight would take. He gave us the weather report. And then he secured the door to the plane. And then I realized what was happening. And all of a sudden, I looked around to my new friends and I said, 
this guy is the ground crew, he's the flight attendant, and now he's the pilot. <laughs> and no joke, I can't even make this up, he pulls this red curtain across the cockpit and he yells, just yells it loudly, uh, prepare for takeoff. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay. And we got there safely. And I made a lot of friends. <laughs> Joel got through a lot of podcasts, but this was such a unique experience. And I remember really clear, clearly uh, staring at the red curtain during the flight, realizing that that was all that separated me from the pilot. That if I really wanted to, I could just go up and check on him, you know? <laughs> How you doing? That that was all that separated us. But that curtain was there to clearly define where the passengers stay and where the restricted area, the pilot, the flight attendant, the ground crew in this case, but where they go. That they're allowed to be in there and you stay out here. And at that time, uh, at the time when Jesus was on earth, there was a temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple, there was a curtain, a huge curtain. And this curtain was much like that one on the airplane. It was, it was a room divider. It was separating the Holy of Holies from the place where the people could be. And once a year, a, whole, a high priest was allowed to go behind the curtain just only once a year to engage with the Holy God, to atone for the sins of the nation. And there, these weren't just window shears that that blew in the wind, historians say this curtain was 60 feet high and four inches thick. And the book of Exodus teaches us that it was fashioned from blue and purple and scarlet material, and it was fine twisted linen. And in Matthew 27, 50 through 51, we see something momentous happen at the moment when Jesus Christ dies on the cross. It says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And as Jesus died, the curtain was torn. And it was as if God moved out of that place. That is where he was. But when the curtain was torn, he moved out of that place, never again to dwell solely in the temple made by human hands. This was the way into the holy of holies. The way into the presence of God was now open for all people. And the sin that had separated us from God was, was like that curtain. That was the thing that kept us, people who would make mistakes and, and not, not be able to, to live up to the holiness standard, that sin that always kept us far from God was just completely split in half. And Jesus Christ died on a cross, and his resurrection was about to split open the way. So instead of the high priest having to enter in the Holy of Holies on our behalf of other people, Christ says, I am now the superior high priest. All you need is me. And we actually see this in Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. It unpacks it for us. And it says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And so Jesus Christ, through his death, has removed the barriers between God and man. And now we can approach him with confidence and boldness. God was breaking down the wall when he died on the cross. He, he was tearing the curtain. He was breaking the things that were between us and himself. And he forever opened the way into his presence. And that is why we celebrate so big and so hard today. Because the curtain is torn. It isn't there anymore. He tore the curtain because he loved us so deeply. 
He tore the curtain because he didn't want us to be alone anymore. He ripped the divider between heaven and earth so that our sins would be forgiven, so that we could cheat death and be, live eternally with him. And, and he reached down from heaven and, and he gave us hope and acceptance and comfort and strength. And he gave us an invitation to his family. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can walk right into God's presence today. There's no barrier. And that is what he did on the cross that day. And in that moment of history, on Friday, the curtain had ripped and Jesus had appeared to be dead. And Friday was awful. Friday was awful for the friends and followers of Jesus. As we, as we read the account, Jesus was arrested. He was falsely accused. He, he died a criminal's death that he didn't deserve. And his disciples, the people that were following him, they were fearful they might be next. Look what they did to our leader. They might come after us next. On top of that, the disciples were disillusioned. They, they had walked with him for three years. They had seen him perform these amazing miracles. They had seen him display God's incredible power. But now all things have come crashing down. They were asking questions like, how could this be happening to God? I mean, we thought Jesus was God. We, we, we believed him. How could this be happening? It doesn't look like he is going to live up to any of the promises that he made. And as I was preparing for today, I wonder if maybe you felt that way at times. Maybe you feel that way today where you thought God would come through in a certain way. Maybe you thought God would, would, would meet you at a certain place or, or he, would, he would keep you from some calamity that you've experienced and he hasn't. He didn't. Somehow you walked through that hardship or that storm. Or, or maybe someone who claimed to love Jesus, claimed to, to represent Jesus, hurt you deeply and, and that made you pull away significantly from God and you feel a bit disillusioned today. You feel a little bit like the disciples did. It, in my mind, I call it Friday feelings. Those Friday feelings where you feel a bit disillusioned, a bit hurt, a bit insecure. You, you aren't even sure. Maybe you've even asked God recently, does God even care? Because it doesn't seem like it. And so this was Friday. The disciples were hiding out. They were fearful. They were disillusioned. They were frustrated. And then the next day is Saturday. And Saturday was quiet. It was, it was silent. Interestingly, the entire day that Jesus lay in the grave was actually the Passover Sabbath for the Jewish people. And they didn't understand this yet, but Jesus was making a statement, okay? The day that he laid in the tomb was not just random. He didn't pick any Friday or any Saturday to do this. This was very calculated. It was very purposeful. And when Jesus was laying in the tomb, he was signifying that he was abolishing the ceremonial law. That he wasn't there. He wasn't with them. He wasn't participating in the rules and the ceremonies because he was in the tomb. And his point was this. I'm dead to those observances. You don't need them anymore to connect to God. The, 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 the curtain is ripped. You don't have to go through all these motions to get to me. I can lay in the tomb and guess what's still going to happen? You're still going to be able to connect with me because me dying on the cross is enough. And so by him laying in the tomb on Saturday, by it being quiet, Jesus was actually speaking very, very loudly. And when it looks like Jesus is buried for good, Jesus is busy doing something awesome in the dark. Pilate posts a guard at the tomb 
Because when he put Jesus' body in there, he wasn't just burying a person. He was burying a whole revolt. He, he was burying this whole new set of, of beliefs and teachings that threatened what they believed to be true. And so when the stone was rolled to the entrance, the enemies of Jesus sighed relief. They thought, oh, phew, God, that, that, was, that was close. Because there were people following him. He was feeding thousands of people on hills with miracles. We don't know how he was doing it, but he was building momentum. Luckily, we stopped it. We put him in there. We put a, a stone that no one could move in front of him. And we put a guard there. This is it. And the world thinks that Jesus is done for. Jesus is out of the way. They think his word is buried for good. But we know that Jesus is at work in the dark places. Jesus is at work in the dark places. And, and I came here today to remind you, to remind your Friday feelings, those feelings we just talked about, those feelings of pain and those feelings of, of disillusionment and fear and hurt and, and heartache, that Jesus is at work in those dark places. He is at work there. He has not gone very far. He is at work. And for 20 centuries, the world has given it their best shot in vain but they can't bury him. They can't hold him. They can't silence him or limit him. He is not staying in the tomb. In fact, death itself is about to die. So Friday, excruciating, excruciating day. Saturday, silence. Silence. Okay, God, what are you up to? Sunday, miraculous. Sunday's miraculous. No one knew what to expect as day three was upon them. And when we look at the gospel accounts, we see there was a small group of women, including his mother, uh, Mary, Mary Magdalene. There was a woman named Johanna, a woman named Salome, who was the mother of James and John, perhaps a few others, the gospels say. And they came to that tomb on Sunday morning. And these women, they had come to know Jesus personally. They had trusted him as their savior and their Messiah. They were the ones that traveled through Galilee and cared for him. They, they helped him with what he needed. They, they, they uh, helped him as he walked through and, and did his ministry. They were the ones that were at the foot of the cross. They were the ones who sat in the darkness as the tomb was sealed. And their hearts were grieved to the point of breaking. And I'm sure they were confused and frustrated and fearful like all the disciples were. But then they were back that Sunday at dawn. Now, many over the centuries have asked this question. Why did God choose these women to be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? They've asked that question. And many people have tried to answer it. There's been theories like, well, God chooses uh, the unexpected. He chooses the weak instead of the proud and the strong. And so these women represented that. Or, or God rewards those who are faithful. And all the disciples had fled and forsaken him, but, but the women didn't. So, so God came to them first. Or, or some have even linked it to Eve and said, uh, death came through the, to the human race through a woman, and therefore redemption uh, only makes sense to appear first to a woman. Now, I don't know if all of that is true. That may or may not be true. We don't know all the reasons why God does what he does. But when I studied the scripture, I can tell you I know one thing for sure. This is something I can know for sure. That the reason those women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection is because they were the first to show up. <laughs> Maybe it's just that. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's so profound 
It's so profound. It's amazing. You'll find yourself in the center of God's purposes if you're just around where God is working. If you're just around where God is speaking. If you just come around where God is moving. If you just attempt to get into God's presence, just show up. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate it. But God is showing us here, these women, they were there, so I came to them. And that is what he is telling us, to just show up. Talk to God like you would talk to a friend. Get to worship every week. Put yourself in a position to encounter God like these women did. The scripture says, there they were, at the tomb. In Matthew 28, 2 through 7, it's okay if you get a little excited when we read this part. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook, and they became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly, tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you in Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. And the death of Jesus looked like the single greatest defeat that God's people had ever experienced. But at that precise moment, when it looked like evil had won, God was accomplishing his greatest victory and his best miracle. And hell and death and sin in the grave was defeated for all time. You know, the record, the gospel uh, record about 35 miracles of Jesus. And John's gospel ends in John 21, 25. It says that um, he did many other things as well. In fact, the world would not have enough room for all the books if they were written down. And in the gospel of John, there were seven signs um, of miracles that led up to the resurrection. And all of those miracles pointed to the fullness of who Jesus is. But what we see in each of those miracles, what, the string of, of uh, thing that we see that's the same, the string of similarity, is that the prerequisite for a miracle is always a problem. Nobody wants the problem, everybody wants the miracle. So this morning, if you're here and you have a problem, you are in the perfect spot for the miracle because that's the prerequisite. When there was no wine left at the wedding and the bride and the groom were about to be publicly embarrassed and ashamed, Jesus showed up. He turned water into wine, the best kind and enough for everyone, and hope changed everything. When the royal official's son was sick with a fever, this desperate father traveled far to get to Jesus. He just wanted to say to him, come, come with me, lay your hands on my son so that he's healed. But from a distance, Jesus' words were so powerful that at the exact moment Jesus declared the boy's healing, his fever left him and he was healed. And hope changed everything. When a man lay crippled at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, just waiting for an opportunity to walk again, Jesus shows up and rewrites his story with six words. And when a group of 5,000 men along with their families needed lunch, Jesus multiplies a little boy's two loaves and five fish to feed them. Then he walks on the water to his disciples in the middle of the lake in a storm in both situations. Hope changed everything. Don't forget about when Jesus spit on some dust, <laughs> made some mud, smeared it on a man's eyes. 
then he could see again. And then a few days later, Lazarus dies, he's in a tomb. All hope seemed lost until Jesus shows up on the scene, raises him from the grave, and hope changes everything. He is the way maker, he is the miracle worker, and he is alive today, he is alive. I was a single mom, broken and rejected, made to feel less than for the circumstance that I was in. I had religion with no relationship, but hope changes everything. The heartbreaking, treacherous path of a heroin-addicted son, the devastating, unexpected death of my dear sweet mama, Finding myself spiraling out of control into darkness, scared I'd never get out, but hope changes everything. I used to be enslaved to sin and depression and fear, but hope changed everything. My leg and my arm were badly injured. I was in need of a healing, the doctor said, was not going to happen, but hope changed everything. I grew up believing the lies and living the lies that I was unwanted, unworthy, unloved, unimportant, but hope changes everything. Years of alcoholism, and broken relationship, but hope changes everything. I used to be very insecure with very low self-esteem, but Jesus came into my life, brought me hope, and hope changed everything. I praised him. I praise him for bringing me hope and making my life worth living. I used to be sick, dying, and in need of a heart transplant. They said that I wouldn't live to even see my high school graduation, much less a wedding day. Having a baby was completely out of the question. Now I've been married for 11 years, and my miracle baby boy is almost two. Hope changes everything. doctors who said that our four-year-old daughter had an aggressive form of brain cancer, telling us that science would indicate that it would likely be in her spine. I stand here to tell you that Jesus had the last word. Her spine remained untouched, and today she is cancer-free, because hope changes everything. I was once torn with the guilt from being an adulterous affair becoming pregnant to that man and attempting to abort my daughter twice. Then two years later, I did have an abortion to a child to the same man who wasn't raising his first child. But there is hope because with forgiveness, everything has changed. I now have a blessed, happy marriage, a beautiful, healthy daughter, an amazing son, and a daycare to raise so many more children. 
Hope changes everything. Sorrow may come in the darkest night, but hope changes everything. Evil can put up its strongest fight, but hope changes everything. The Savior has come with the morning light. Hope changes everything. He traded death for eternal life. Hope changes everything. There is nothing stronger, nothing greater, nothing higher than the name of Jesus. He is the change we long for. He is the one that turns our chaos into order. He is the strength to heal our brokenness. He is the grace that empowers us to live a fulfilled life. He is the one that never changes and nothing can ever shake him. He reaches the darkest places of our world and he knows no limitation. He is fearless and his love for us is so fierce. He is the spotless one who was sacrificed for all of humanity. He is. He is. Son of David. Creator.
greatest miracle that Jesus did was the forgiveness of sin made possible through the crucifixion and resurrection of the sinless Son of God. And of all the 35 miracles documented, there is no close second. This miracle of salvation is available anytime to anyone, anywhere. And if you're here today and you want to experience the saving touch of Jesus, that miracle you can have right now. All we need to do is repent of our sin, repent of the ways we've resisted God and ask him to come close to us, trust him with our heart and our life. The curtain has been torn. You have easy access to God, torn in two, so that we could have relationship and eternity with him. And so we're just gonna sing this chorus one more time before we go. I wanna ask you, if you wanna make that decision to do something brave, do something courageous today, at these tables we have here on the side, there are people there ready to pray with you. You can bring the people that came with you, say, hey, you're coming with me because you brought me, you made me eat a waffle and sit here and talk. And, and they'll come with you and just pray with that person. We just wanna give you a book and give you some resources to help you get started on your journey of faith. This is the best decision you'll ever make and it's the most important one on Easter. No other decision you make today will be as important as this one. And so don't let this opportunity pass you by. Let's just sing this chorus out one more time and would you come and to these tables as we, as we go forward and make a decision to follow Jesus. And in the darkest hours And in the valley long I will fear no evil Cause you'll never let me go You'll never let me